Hi, I'm Linda Calabresi. I'm a GP and the medical editor of HealthEd. Welcome to our unique podcast series now available direct to your device. The series features some of Australia's leading clinical experts talking on topics that are both practical and important to Australian GPs. All right, so why don't I begin at the end? So this is the takeaway message from today and I'm actually going to take you through how we've gotten here in this presentation. So, first of all, we are looking at something that we're now calling intensive early screen exposure. So this is over four hours a day, and incredibly, this is often involving babies. Okay, so little babies um, popped in front of a screen for hours uh, on, on end every single day. Um, interestingly, and perhaps not terribly surprisingly to some of you, this has now been... Uh, um, related to symptoms of ADHD as well as autism spectrum disorder. We've even come to a treatment, and I'll actually go into that treatment, what it looks like and what it's allegedly going to do to you. Uh, but removing the screens for three months, minimum, and actually training the parents on how to reciprocate and engage in proper play with their children. I'm going to show you some brain imaging research that is uh, identifying potential candidate regions as to what is changing, what is actually changing in the human brain when we put people in front of screens for hours and hours and hours. And finally, we'll get to some of the stuff, some of the really interesting research about nature exposure in particular and ways of moderating and buffering this sort of intensive screen exposure. All right, so autism spectrum disorder, um, most of you I'm sure are familiar, is a neurodevelopmental disorder. But contrary to um, popular belief, it's actually only got a moderate genetic heritability. So causal hypotheses, like most things in life, are nature and nurture. What's interesting is the escalation. Now, this is American data. I actually recently had some Australian data across my desk, which actually suggests it's even worse. So it's just escalating and escalating. I mean, that's a massive increase, and the prevalence in the last 20-odd years has doubled. What we know about screens is that 95% of Western children can competently use a mobile device, many by age one, and parents are using these devices so they can complete chores, calm the child, and ironically, get them to bed, which is interesting because actually it'll have the opposite effect, and we, we already know that. All right, so what is one of the impairments? Most of you probably know that autism, the two primary uh, criteria, is a significant de deficit in social and um, particularly linguistic communication and also some obsessive behaviours around interests and that kind of thing. What underpins that in the actual brain is a deficit of what psychologists call theory of mind. Now, in its most simplest form, Theory of mind is the understanding that I have a different idea about things to what you have. So, in its simplest form, I can see a room in front of me with lots of people in green seats, but I understand that what you're looking at is me and a screen behind me. I might understand that if I invite you to my house, I need to offer you tea, coffee, water, juice, because just because I want a coffee doesn't mean that you do. You might want something else. Okay, I understand that my mind is different to yours. Now, theory of mind explodes in ability around age three and four, so it's very difficult for you all to reflect on a time where you didn't have it, okay? So it's hard to sort of go back in time and think, when did I not have theory of mind? If you consider the average tantruming two-year-old, interestingly, we know two-year-olds throw tantrums because they get frustrated, they can't communicate, we get that. What you probably don't appreciate is that if a two-year-old is thirsty, for example, 
they believe that they're part of a hive mind. They think that you know that they're thirsty and you're not giving them what they want, okay? And so they get stroppy and they scream and they yell. And this is what actually propels linguistic communication and ability because they start to realise, hey, mum doesn't know what I want. I need to communicate that to her. So that's a very simple version of theory of mind. It then builds into being able to put yourselves in other people's shoes, imagine things, forecast, hypotheses. How would I feel in this situation? How would this person feel in this situation? Clearly, it's going to have impacts on emotion recognition, and I'm going gi to give you all a test of this uh, in a minute. Um, also, reciprocity, just communication, back and forth, that kind of thing. And as time goes on, if these things remain impaired, of course it's going to have a knock-on effect um, in friendship formation. Generally, if you have poor theory of mind, you don't play well with others, okay? Because you, you can't really empathise, you don't understand what's going on in their head and it's very difficult for you. Now, sit back and relax, you're all going to be tested. I'm going to show you a video clip and there's no dialogue in this video clip whatsoever. And if you have an intact theory of mind, you should be able to figure out some of what's going on here just by looking at the body language. So let's, without further ado, give you all a bit of a test. Now, don't fret. You don't need to tell me the whole plot. If you figured out from that that the boy saw something that got his attention and worried him, and he was trying to get the attention of the man by looking at him in a particular way, the man realised the boy was trying to get his attention, so he came over there to see what was worrying the boy, and then he acknowledged that he understood what was worrying the boy, which was a photo of the other gentleman. If you've got that, congratulations. Theory of mind's on point, OK? Now, True story, not half an hour ago, someone who came to my previous talk bounded up to the desk and said, I'm terribly interested in your book, I'm Aspie myself. And I said, oh, are you really? Because you know everyone's Aspie these days. And I said, um, how did you go with the clip? And she said, actually, I did struggle with that. She said, I could tell the boy was lost, but I, I didn't really 
Okay? And that is classic for someone with autism or an impaired theory of mind, having trouble deducing body language, emotion, all of those sorts of things that you probably take for granted in your daily life. Here's an actual test we use um, to split out neurotypical people and people with autism. So this is called the reading the mind and the eyes test. All you get is a pair of eyes and you have to pick the correct expression behind it. This is particularly difficult because these are socially sophisticated expressions. They're not the, just the, the standard emotions, fear, sadness, happiness, etc. Okay. Now, before anyone's freaking out, Women do better than men on this, and older people do better than younger people. <laughs> so, so if you're a young bloke going, ah, oh, <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> um, theory of mind, fun fact, is one of those very, very rare things that continues to improve with age. There is truth that age brings wisdom, because you get more and more practice with people as you go on you get more and more social interaction, you get more and more um, sort of immersion in social milieu and you figure things out. Uh, many years ago I did a, a funny little theory of mind uh, investigation with one of my students and we looked at the capacity of young people versus old people and we actually used this test to see how good their overall theory of mind was. But young people versus old people and their capacity to understand a scenario. So we gave them a scenario and we said, what's going on here? And it was actually an infidelity scenario. And the young people were all like, oh no, it's fine, they're just really good friends and they're totally platonic. And all the old cynics went, I don't think so. <laughs> this guy is so dodgy. And they were right, okay. So indeed, if you're ever sort of wondering what's going on socially, asking an older woman could actually, or ask your mum, that could actually help you out. All right, um, why are we going on about this? Right, a few years ago, several years ago, we started to get these weird little case reports, all these little bubbers presenting for treatment or presenting for question mark autism. Um, interestingly, the ASD symptoms showed rapid decline once the screens were thrown out the window and they were replaced with daily reciprocal parental play. Sounds so basic, doesn't it? What specifically improves social facial expression? the babies actually started to develop a stronger interest in people in the first place, which is great, and surprise, surprise, language and communication and um, hyperactivity decreased. Marius Zamfir coined the term virtual autism. I've actually spoken to Marius. Um, he is actually a clinical psychologist by trade, not a researcher, but he was so worried about what was coming through his clinic day after day. And he has now started to actually simply say to people when they come to him with a child with so-called autism, okay, fine, what we're gonna do is we're gonna remove screens, we're gonna do this parental training, and let's see what happens after three months, okay? Maybe you really do have autism, or maybe you have this virtual artificial autism. Uh, not to be outdone, a French psychiatrist has gone, leapt right out of the box and insisted there's a um, causal link here. I think he's probably a little premature, but I will show you some of the research he's picking up on. So I'll just orient you to the Heffler article first. I think this is quite interesting. So you're going to start seeing this in the literature more and more often, being called autism-like symptoms. Okay, so we, it, I mean, it's not autism, is it? But it's something awfully like it. And this is what we're seeing over and over again. Interestingly, even in populations where people genuinely have autism, okay, it's not a virtual thing, it's not about screens, they clearly have the, the real deal, we can see that symptoms worsen with increasing screen time. So this is having an impact on both populations, potentially neurotypical, potentially autism. 
All right, we love a good theory in psychology. Um, so I'm just going to draw your attention to a couple of important ones here. The first one is just a reminder about neuroplasticity and adaptation. So all the two-year-olds that you're treating at the moment have more neurons than you do. So the human brain's an extraordinary beast. It basically has an over preponderance of neurons. And you learn by a process of cell death. That's actually how we get smarter, by bits of our brain dying off. Incidentally, this is why we're the most adaptable species on the face of the Earth, because we can wire our brain to any environment. North Pole, equator, not a problem. We learn, yeah? So those neurons that you use day in, day out, and that you need for survival in your culture, stay. They stick and they get stronger, like a muscle being you know, operated every day. The ones that you don't, wither and die away. This is why, we, for example, we know newborn babies can pick up every single phoneme of every single language, no problem. But eventually, they will learn their mother tongue, they will only learn the phonemes of that language, and their ability to then hear and pick up the phonemes of other languages dies off and withers away. That's why if you pick up a second language as an adult, you will always speak with an accent, because you will speak with the phonemes of your mother tongue. It's only the bilinguals who will genuinely um, develop both accents perfectly. So that's a little bit about brain wiring. So have a think about that. If a kid's sitting in front of this all day, how's their brain wiring? Yeah, compared to what evolution expects them to be doing, running around, climbing trees, being exposed to stuff. Now, I'll just take you back in time a little bit, uh, just in terms of some of this nature stuff, which is becoming more and more interesting as time goes on. So, in 1984, psychologist Roger Ulrich published a very curious finding that patients in a room overlooking nature, trees, etc., got better quicker, asked for less pain medication and got released earlier than patients in a little box, just in a, in a hospital ward. Yeah? No one knew why. It was just one of those weird little findings that popped out and everyone went, what's going on there? Um, this has now set off a flurry of research over the last you know, 30, 40 years. People really trying to understand what is nature doing? You know, why is nature immersion helping in some ways? Just people, their stress levels, their blood pressure, their developing brain, what's going on here? Um, one of the theories is attention restoration, and I think this is the one that's probably got the, the best um, evidence behind it. But effectively, see this world we live in with all these lines and lines and lines. It's a very Western world, by the way. There's a whole theory behind this called carpeted world theory. But as your brain's trying to analyse all of this, it gets taxed. It's actually a bit difficult. So you think about being in a city, concrete jungle, lots of stimulation, you know, sirens, lots of lines, lines, lines. It's actually difficult. It becomes a bit stressful, cognitively taxing. Nature, for reasons we don't fully understand yet, but we're getting there, seems to give the brain a reset. You know this, don't you? Sit outside under a tree, in front of a beach, you know, it's just relaxing. It seems to help the brain reset, and so it can recharge and start up again. So similarly, you go to sleep every night, same kind of thing, yeah? So this seems to be what's going on. In terms of actual brain development, we're starting to see some very interesting neuroimaging results. So looking at, for example, myelination and white matter, the higher the screen use, we have those problems with the organisation of the brain. Yeah? And so now we're starting to see problems with the myelination that underpin language skills and various other cognitive assessments. 
On the other side of the fence, those kitties who have a lot of exposure to green space are showing better wiring in regions um, to do with working memory and attention. Okay, so, that's, so we've really got some good quality brain imaging research happening now. Possibly even a neurotransmitter involved here, but honestly, I like this last one. It's very simple. If you're attached to this all day, what aren't you doing? Yeah? And if you're a kitty, you've got a developing brain, evolution expects it to have certain experiences along the way and that's not happening, you're going to have a problem. I love this research. I actually stumbled across this somewhat accidentally. So, you're reading a book, okay? and we know that readers often have better theory of mind. It improves your theory of mind. Same thing. Hey, you're reading about characters, you're reading about what people did, why did they do this, why did they do that? What would I do in that situation? Massively increases your ability to take perspectives, different perspectives. So when you read, all sorts of areas of your brain light up. Okay? It's not just the bits and pieces looking at words, it's imagination, it's visual, it's cognitive, it's everything. And it's, you, you're really immersing yourself in the life of that character. Interestingly, when we see people, kids, I think this was done on kids, yeah, 8 to 12, um, doing too much screen time, we find a degeneration of that whole brain involvement. And what those little circles are telling you is when they're reading, what they're doing is word recognition. That's about it. There's none of that sort of whole brain immersion. And I, the reason I like this is it speaks to me. I know myself, if I'm doom scrolling one day for whatever reason, Ask me what I've read an hour later. I can't tell you. I really can't. We've all had that experience where you're just sort of flicking through the news or what have you, and it, somehow it just doesn't stick. All right, so in terms of your own clinical practice, what are some of the things you can think about here? Um, a paediatrician that I was presenting with years ago, an Australian paediatrician, I might add, um, she has taken to spying on her patients. This is her latest technique. And she, what she said to myself and the, the room was the number of times she gets the referral from the GP saying question mark autism, often very young, you know, toddlers or even babies. And she said the parents come into the room with the toddler or the baby and they plonk them in front of a screen and then the parents sit there and they do these ones. So she said the first thing she does when she sees that happening in her waiting room is she brings the parents in for a talk. How much in real life interaction is this child getting? How much mirroring, how much reciprocity, how much social play is this child getting? Why don't we get rid of the screens, start that up, very similar to Maria Samphia, come back and let's see what this looks like in a few weeks' time, yeah, once we've changed the child's environment. So what is going on for the kitty? Nature prescriptions. This is not as crazy as it sounds, I promise you. So we know that even just, here's some lovely evidence here, just five lousy days off screens. These were not kids with autism, these were neurotypical kids, but it still improved their ability to start relating to other as others as human beings, each other. So these are some of the things that doctors around the world are now looking at in terms of nature prescriptions. It's not just about autism, it's not just about ADHD, it's about stress, it's about blood pressure, it's about well-being in general. And I particularly like that last study, um, looking at half an hour to an hour a day outside, out and about, in nature, 
just leading to better psychological well-being. They had over 19,000 participants and controlled for just about every covariate you could think of, and it's still held just this time outside in nature. This is a bona fide actual nature prescription from the GP network in Shetland, Scotland. Yeah? Absolutely brilliant idea what they've done here. They've looked at their local area month by month, because of course the weather in Scotland is you know, very changeable. <laughs> you people in Melbourne, I'm sure, can uh, relate to that. Um, but month by month, they've broken down something that their patients can do. So if you want to get your patients out and about, this is a great idea. And I think GPs really forget this has a lot of power with people to actually write something up on a list, give your patients a goal. This week, I want you to do these three things. I have assessed as your GP that you are capable of doing these three things, and I want you to go out there and do them. Pop that on your fridge, here's your goal, here's your motivation. Get out, go and do something. Very, very powerful stuff, very useful. Now, my colleague Michael Nagel and I have actually recently written a book about some of this stuff. I'll say straight away, it has not been written for doctors, it has been written for lay people, and it focuses particularly on the teenage sorts of years, because we're wondering what's happening when you have an entire generation whose time has been spent on screens, whose theory of mind has been impaired, and we talk about some of the psychological theories that perhaps explain some of the socio-cultural changes that you've seen. Uh, interestingly, my chapter on sex remains one of the most popular ones. Of course, always is, isn't it? Um, and I've been asked to speak about that here, there and everywhere because I'm, I know you guys are going to tell me because GPs have already told me there's all sorts of weird and wonderful things going on out there. But think about the amount of... Um, you know, non-verbal body language, if that all falls away and you don't understand what the other person is doing, saying or wanting from you, how does that relate? How does this, how, what do you look like in 10 years time after this? Yeah, so this is, we're looking at some of these socio-cultural changes and going, can we perhaps understand this from a psychological perspective? Um, I'll be out the front if anyone's interested. We do have a few physical copies for sale. But for today, I hope I've given you something to think about. And please do consider the idea of nature prescriptions. They're simple, they're free. Jump online, Scotland, Shetland, GP Nature Prescriptions. You'll get everything you need there. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. We hope you are enjoying this series and will recommend it to your friends and colleagues. I'm Linda Calabresi. And on behalf of the team here at HealthEd, I look forward to joining you soon for our next podcast. If you enjoyed this audio segment, you can find out more about our free webcast lectures, which can be accessed from any device on our website at healthed.com.au. The podcasts published on this page are for medical professionals only. The content is not a substitute for medical advice. If you have a health issue, you should seek the advice of a suitable qualified health professional.